Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. And so over the course of the next five weeks, I've picked five songs that are about, loosely joined together, that are about spiritual renewal, where it comes from, how it happens, what is required for us to be renewed and what God is doing in the world. And today's installation might feel like a weird place to start, but I'm going to suggest that it is the only place to start. And so the song begins today, it drops us into the middle of a situation, yes? Like we're obviously in the middle of a story. There must be some kind of way out of here, said the joker to the thief. Well, the questions immediately arise, why are they trying to get away? Who are these guys? Why are they identified as a joker and a thief? You continue on, you're like, wait a second, growling wildcats, riders approaching, and it's two riders approaching, not just any, it's two riders approaching. What is going on? And obviously, these lyrics are not going to lend themselves very easily to understanding. This will not be easy. And if you were to say to Jimmy, hey, this sounds like some kind of weird prophecy, well, you'd be exactly right. Bob Dylan, we identified one of these guys as a thief. Bob Dylan was a thief. And Hendrix from him, and all of them from Isaiah. This song is note for note, an exposition on Isaiah 21. And, if, and as you're reading along, I, like, and nobody identifies this. I, I've never heard that Dylan or Hendrix either, either identified this. But as you're reading Isaiah 21, you stumble across Watchtower, and you just pause there for a second. Like, wait a second, this is, this is not new. We've been doing this since Israelite times. Yes, exactly. And in our reading in Isaiah, we're dropped into the middle of a story as well. The Israelites are going through something, and what they are going through is part of a significantly larger story, a huge story. In fact, it's one of the most biggest and most important stories in the entire Bible. And to put a point on it, the title in my Bible above Isaiah 21 says, An Oracle Concerning Babylon. An Oracle Concerning Babylon. Babylon is this theme. And it is a prophecy about Babylon. Now here's the thing. Some of you are going, oh, we're starting in the Old Testament in prophecy. Yes, we are. And prophecy is hard, but it's hard for a good reason because prophecy is about power. And if you don't get that, most of the Old Testament will not make sense to you. Prophecy is about power. Prophecy seeks to speak on behalf of God and to deliver a message to a people under power in such a way that the powerful don't figure it out. Say it again. Prophecy seeks to deliver a message to people under power in such a way that the powerful don't figure it out. And you're like, well, why wouldn't we want the powerful to figure it out? Because there are consequences to unpopular messages. People get hurt when they speak out against powers. You, so you can't say it straight up. And so what the biblical prophets understood and what our modern-day poets all understand together is that you have to deliver this message sideways. How do you do that? Most prophets write poetry. You're like, well, I still don't get it. 
And when I don't under, when I when it when my mind is not open to prophecy or poetry, that's when I get nervous. They're talking because the prophets and the poets are talking around me, which means I need to check myself and see what's going on. Why can't I hear what is being spoken to a particular kind of people? And that's what Isaiah is doing, and that's what Dylan does, and that is what Hendrix does all in their turns. Isaiah 21, an oracle concerning Babylon. An oracle generally reserved for pagan world, but it's interesting that it is used here in, in Israelite world, is a divine message, often mysterious, regularly unclear for all the reasons we've just said. And in this telling, in Isaiah's telling, Isaiah is talking about a real place and a real people. The people of God are in exile, having been conquered and carried off in 586, 586 years before Christ, 586 B.C., one of the two most significant events in all of the Old Testament. The first, you might say, is the Exodus. The second is the conquering of Israel and their, <clears throat> and their captivity in Babylon. But to think of Babylon as only a historic reality, as a historic data point, a city or an empire located on a map, is to, is to make a huge mistake. No, Babylon is one of the great archetypes of Scripture, and we see it from, gener from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It runs like a red thread throughout the entire Scriptures. You're like, well, how does it start? Well, it begins in Genesis with a story of the Tower of Babel. It's people who seek to climb into the heavens, to supplant God, and to impose their will on the world. We will be like God, is what they said. And God looks down and says, that's cute, and confuses them, mixes up their language and all of that. And that is what Babylon means. The word Babylon means confusion. Eventually, coming out of that story, the Babylonian Empire does rise, and it becomes an existential threat to the nation of Israel, who takes them away, <clears throat> and so much of the Old Testament is written about how to live faithfully in the shadow or in the belly of Babylon. For instance, Isaiah is the first to speak of this. He is the watchman. He sees the judgment coming. He judges even as Babylon is victorious over them. Isaiah, we have three parts. The first part is when they think they're going to get taken over. The second part is when it happens. And the third part is going, well, what do we do after Babylon? The book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes in kind of two sections. The first is how do we mourn when we've been conquered by a foreign power? And the second is, is how do we live with fidelity to God in the midst of Babylon? Ezekiel is a scathing criticism of leaders who compromise with Babylon and decide that they'll worship Babel's gods in order to keep themselves going. Daniel is a book about the challenges of citizenship in Babylon. So Daniel doesn't say if you live in Babylon, you're a terrible person. That's not what he says. He's like, there are realities about living in empire. And in fact, the story of Daniel and his friends is like all of them work for the Babylonian government. So you can live faithfully in exile, but you also need to understand that at any moment, you can be thrown into a furnace or a lion's den. Those two stories might be familiar to you from childhood. And further, Daniel has a prophecy about someone called this son of man who will overcome Babylon. And we get into the New Testament, and obviously Babylon is conquered. It's conquered by Persia, and then Persia is conquered by Greece, and then Greece is ultimately conquered by Rome. But there remains in all of this a spirit of idolatry and injustice. This is what Babylon is about. 
They are all powerful empires who exercise God's will on the world. And so Babylon continues into the New Testament, not as a nation, of course, it was conquered, but it exists as an idea and as an archetype. It became a way in the New Testament of speaking about the Romans. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter at the very end, he says, the church in Babylon sends you greetings. And that is code language for Rome. Because the people he's writing to know he's not in, they know he's not in Babylon. They know he's in Rome. But he uses Babylon as a way to send a message that won't get heard elsewhere. And his message to the followers of Jesus at that time was live in reverent fear during your exile. Live as a foreigner and immigrant and exile and don't lose sight of what God still has for you to do. As aliens and exiles, he says, abstain from the desires of flesh that wage war on your soul. And if you continue on, and this is a whole other sermon series, but it goes all the way to Revelation. Revelation is mostly one big critique of Rome. Revelation writes, the Apostle John in Revelation writes, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all nations drink of the wine of her wrath or madness and of her fornication. And you're like, oh, we're doing that. Fornication is just another word, another way that John uses to talk about idolatry. Later he calls Babylon, Rome, the source of all idolatry. Babylon is a spirit, not a city. It is an idea. It is a theme that all the biblical authors want us to pay close attention to. And in fact, you could describe the entire Bible, one way of doing it is a conflict between Babylon, the worship of idols. And the worship of idols always leads to injustice. When we worship the wrong gods, we treat each other wrong. And it causes pain for others. And so on the one hand in the Bible, you have Babylon. And on the other hand, you have the kingdom of God. They say it's the worship of the true and living God. And what the Bible will always say is that when we worship well, when we worship the proper God, we will learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. Babylon's two major sins are idolatry and injustice, and the kingdom of God is the opposite. Fidelity in worship and justice towards neighbor. And we cannot be serious believers, friends, unless we engage in this conflict because it's through the entire scripture. The spirit of Babylon claims for itself what belongs properly to God. God's will, God's power, God's purpose, and God's principles. The spirit of Babylon claims a divine right to rule others. And it claims for itself a manifest destiny to shape history according to its own agendas. In other words, Babylon always gets us to worship the wrong thing. And while we may not actually bow down and worship idols, like none of us do that, of course. But we can see throughout history where we bow down to other things in our own lives and in, our, in, in the life of nations. Money, sex, power, the nation itself, or even comfort or hedonism. And in doing so, we worship the wrong thing and we hurt others. Things get hurt. And this spirit of Babylon, this improper worship, this, I, this idol worship, always and everywhere destroys people and destroys creation. Jimmy said, the businessmen drink my wine and plowmen dig my earth. None of them along the line know what any of it is worth. It is simply extractive. 
And in doing so, Babylon, this idea, turns everything together. Excuse me, turns everything to desert, betraying and destroying. And that is how this oracle begins. Whirlwinds in in the Negev, which is a desert. From the desert, a terrible land. Confusing, whirling winds in this wasteland because of Babylon. And Isaiah is the watchman in the tower. This prince, a prince of Israel, not a prince of Babylon. He is the watchman in the tower. And at the height of Babylon's power is saying, Babylon is fallen. Your days are numbered. This comes out of Daniel as well. Daniel tells us the story of the handwriting on the wall. Maybe you've heard of this, that old saying. What's actually in Daniel. And Daniel goes in and there's a hand that comes and writes this message on the wall. And Daniel says, the handwriting is on the wall. Your days are numbered, Babylon. And in this confusion, in all of this insanity, in all of this destruction, in this idol worship, in this pain between people, God nevertheless calls the people to faithfulness. Babylon is not forever, and its power is a house of cards. Who gets that? Who sees it? Who's speaking about the flimsiness of power in the world? A joker and a thief say, we got to get out of here. The jokers and the thieves, the people who see through the power and the pomp and the insecure divine proclamations and the idolatry at the heart of all this. They don't call themselves jokers and thieves. Everybody else calls them jokers and thieves. But it's those people, those outsiders, those exiles who are able to look in and say, yeah, that ain't going to hold up. They're the ones who can hear the poetry. They're the ones who see the cracks in the facade. And Isaiah and Dylan and Hendricks, they whisper in all of this a call to conversion, to abandon Babylon everywhere for the kingdom of God. Not with fear and anxiety and a call to arms, no. Dylan writes and Hendricks sings, no reason to get excited, the thief he kindly spoke. No reason to get excited. There are many here among us who feel that life is but a joke. Not that our lives don't matter, but life in this Babylon thing, it's a, it's a ruse, it's hysterical. Are we serious about this? It's a joke. But you and I, we've been through that. And this is not our fate. So let us not talk falsely now. The hour is getting late. Well, how can, they say, how can they say it with such certainty? How can they say that without fear and anxiety when in our own world we are filled with fear and anxiety about the Babylons of the world? Because in opposition to Babylons everywhere is the kingdom of God. A kingdom that God, the rightful God, the one who made heaven and earth, and the ruler of all the nations on the earth, is whispering in poetic, prophetic tones, calling us, inviting us to choose differently, to think differently. Because fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods lie shattered on the ground. Elsewhere, as Isaiah on the one hand is ripping Babylon and say, she's coming down, friends, he offers another prophecy of a different kind. This one a little more famous. And Isaiah says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. 
I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Empires, of course, are bombastic, but not this servant. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands, I love that idea, the islands, these little enclaves, these little isolated things, but nevertheless real, the islands will put their hope. In the face of pomp and circumstance and bravado and breaking bruised reeds and snuffing out wicks, a gentle Savior will come. And in the fullness of time, Jesus comes. And Paul, reflecting on Jesus in Philippians, says, He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And not only did he take on the form of a servant, but he went all the way to the cross. Whereas empires and Babel are building from the ground up God, what God does is see how far down he can go. And how far down does Jesus go in our story? Our Apostles' Creed says he goes all the way to hell. That there is nowhere we can go. There is no depth to which we can get underneath where Jesus has gone for us. And Jesus came and he proclaimed to the people, first words out of his mouth we have recorded are, repent, think differently, reject all this, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is the one, we confess, to whom the Father, God Almighty, has given authority over all the nations. And Jesus is the one to whom God has handed over manifest destiny to shape history according, not to the will of humans, but the will of God. And what is the will of God that all should be saved and brought into eternal life? And Jesus showed us what the kingdom of God looks like. And he did so inside of an empire. He did so inside of Rome. But the kingdom that he proclaimed was about healing and forgiveness, about faithfulness and compassion, love of neighbor, and self-sacrifice. And he was tempted to give it up. This occurred to me this morning. I'm like, oh my God, this is why we changed the gospel reading. Because Satan, the one who puppet strings all the Babylons, comes to Jesus and says, hey, I got a deal for you. This would be a hard deal to turn down, right? I own all the kingdoms of the world. And I pause this morning and go, Satan might be right about that. But I own all the kingdoms of the world. I will give all this to you if you do what? If you bow down and worship me, worship at the heart of everything, what will you worship? And Jesus says to him, worship God and him only shall you serve. He rejects the idols of Babylon. And as soon as you reject the idols of Babylon, you're in trouble. And this is, of course, what happened. And Babylon sought to crush him and hung him on a cross. The full force of Babylon and what it is about There's a full force of empire piled on him in this hideous singularity. What does empire look like? It looks like Jesus on the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he gave up his life, and he descended to the dead. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And what is it now that we proclaim about Jesus? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, let me be clear. God isn't opposed to nations. Jesus is not opposed to nations. In fact, Jesus wraps his arms around the beauty and the diversity of this. In fact, think of this for a second. 
The story of Babylon begins at Babel, where everybody was in one accord, except they tried to get to God, and what did God do? God confused them, spread out languages, spread out people, all of that, so that they couldn't communicate from one another. But what Jesus does is that he's bringing the whole world back together, but he doesn't get rid of the diversity. He welcomes it. It is now part of what makes us beautiful. He reverses Babel by inviting us in just as we are. He, sets, he goes all the way back to Genesis and sets the world aright. Because God is always opposing Babylon, but never with a sword, but always with love. And God has mercy and love and will not break us, but will bring his kingdom to bear in peace over every claim to power until all is made whole. And Isaiah says that even the trees, there are no trees in the desert, but one day there'll be trees again and the trees will clap their hands and the jokers and the thieves will dance with joy. So what does this have to do with spiritual renewal? Let me just put this exclamation point on and we'll get out of here. Spiritual renewal starts with a certain kind of rejecting. Because we're all filled up with stuff. We all have a life to live. You had a life when you walked in here this morning. You got a life to go to when you leave from here. We're all filled up with stuff. But spiritual renewal sometimes means we got to reject some stuff. Consider our call to worship. You'd think I'd have this memorized. I don't. Come, all who are weary of wealth, of power, of struggle, of division. Come, all who are heavy laden with too much, with too little, with anxiety, fear, and anger. Come, all you who have hope for liberation, for peace, for freedom, for the kingdom. And in this way, Isaiah and Jimi Hendrix still beckon us, those of us who are wise enough to still be jokers and thieves and poets. We can live here and work here. This is, this is what we have to do. But we cannot serve the spirit of Babylon, a spirit of oppression and power. And church, hear me when I say that in our moment, the church and Babylon are in a really interesting relationship right now. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, it must be the people on the left or it must be the people on the right, you have immediately lost the thread of Babylon. you got to go back to it. Because it's not about one side or the other. It's about all of us are in this weird relationship that we have got to sort out. But if we would be spiritually renewed... We, ha- we can hear Isaiah and Peter and John and Jesus, and they foster in us not a cynicism. I don't think cynicism is ever healthy for us, but rather a peaceful skepticism about the world as it is. Because as long as we're comfortable in Babylon, we'll never grow, we'll never find the renewal that God intends for you and for me, and which God is going to bring whether we buy in or not. But if we allow ourselves to be unsettled by our poets, by our own texts, there's a call to reject Babylon. Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. And live into a kingdom where we cry, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. And some of the last words in the scriptures from Revelation, they will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be called chosen and faithful believers. So the next time you hear Hendrix, I invite you to hear it as an altar call. Let it convert you. Let it stir you. Let the cathedral that his sound is call you to a deeper place. Not to anxiety and fear, but to remember that this is not our fate. This is not our fate. God's got it. Babylon will be fallen. Don't stress about it. Christ is risen. Live into it with joy.